Well, good morning again, everybody. And uh, good morning to anyone tuning in through Facebook Live. That's why I'm playing on my phone. I've been telling people before the service, uh, before I come up for my sermon, it's not that I find you guys so boring that, that I'm texting, but actually getting things uh, prepped for our Facebook Live feed uh, so that people can tune in live right now or even tune in later uh, to uh, watch our message part of our service. And uh, if you're traveling, that way you know you can actually access it and be right there with us, either live or, or later. Or if you missed a week and want to catch up, uh, we have them there so people can, can follow. Uh, we are continuing our series, uh, When Worlds Collide, as we look at the seven messages to the seven churches right here at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And to just kind of bring us all on board again, we're, we're, we're discussing the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, which is... Uh, arguably the most debated uh, book of the Bible as far as what is its meaning, uh, we are tackling the very first part of that in seven messages. And this revelation, this singular revelation appeared to the Apostle John uh, when he was on the prison island of Patmos. He was put there because he refused to worship the emperor. And he, while there and while in anguish, uh, and service, and uh, there were rock quarries there that they had to work on. Uh, Jesus appears to him in this glorious vision, this glorious revelation that reveals to him this unseen world. And uh, right there at the beginning, calls out these seven different churches. Now, we, we mentioned that there weren't just seven churches at the time, but these were the seven kind of most prominent churches kind of spaced throughout that region at that time. And these messages that are to these specific churches at these specific times still have a message for each of us today, because they can just as easy be any of our churches. But before I go any further, and we dig into uh, the message given to the church of Sardis, let's return to God in prayer and ask for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity of worship as we gather in your name and as we delve into your scriptures and ponder what they might mean for us today. We pray that we would not rely on our own strength, but that we would listen to your voice as you speak to us through these holy scriptures. So, Lord, silence any voice in us but your own. Prepare our hearts, prepare our minds to receive your word. And, Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten. But may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forever. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints said, Amen. Amen. So here we are, we've traveled through several different places. We were in Ephesus, we were in Thyatira, anybody remember some of the other messages that we've covered so far from the other churches? Pergamon, Ephesus, Smyrna, Smyrna. And so here we are, and don't you love saying those places? Why don't we name more places those names? Uh, and here we are in, this, the, in Sardis. And so a uh, little interesting fact about this message. This message that Evelyn read uh, beforehand is the shortest of the seven. It was only six verses. So Evelyn, you see we let, let, let you off the hook. <laughs> only six verses where you could have had some of the ones that some of the other early readers have had. And they, were, they were longer and then they threw in a lot of difficult to pronounce things. So I thought I was being pretty graceful. <laughs> so, it's just saying. But this is the shortest of all those messages. 
And at the time of this message, uh, John, you're, we're, we're saying it was probably somewhere around 96 AD. And at this time, uh, Sardis was between 60 to 100,000 uh, people in population. So this is a decent sized city. And just a reminder, as I mentioned before, that this message speaks beyond just this particular church. Yes, it's speaking to a particular church, but it speaks beyond to churches of all periods of history. And so let's just dig right in to the beginning, because Jesus doesn't mince words when he approaches Sardis. So we're just going to go right ahead to where Jesus starts diagnosing the problem of this church. So right there in the beginning, he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow. That's not pulling any punches, is it? Oh, you, you have this reputation of being alive, but no, you are dead. What in the world? Well, let's, let's, let's dig into this. What, what does Jesus mean when he's looking at this church and saying, you are dead? Because I don't think this means what some of us might think. You know, in the eyes of the unbelieving world, the church of Sardis did not appear dead. They didn't look like they were dead. You see, they were not this church, this empty cathedral, this empty, dusty cathedral in Europe. You can go through Europe and you see these, these beautiful cathedrals, and they're no longer even used as places of worship. In fact, some of them, there's so many of them that one church will own several of these cathedrals. They're empty. Some of them are museums now. The Church of Sardis is not one of those. They're not an empty cathedral. They, they were not this aging country church with an average age of 70 to 80. They were not a church bleeding members due to a controversy of some kind, whether it is an unwanted pastor, a contention within a denomination, or upset over the latest color of carpet that was chosen. It's not one of these churches. In fact, by all accounts, Sardis is a big, busy church. And at the time of this letter, it would have been the largest of the seven churches. Let that sink in for a moment. It was the largest of the seven churches addressed. Does that sound like a church that is dead? You have the reputation of being alive, Jesus says. You have this reputation, but you were dead. You may be busy. You may have lots of committee meetings. You may have lots of programs. You may strategize. You have multiple ministries going on. People show up. You are busy, busy, busy. You have the reputation of being alive. But you Have you ever witnessed something that appeared to be alive, but yet it was dead? Have you ever seen like a big log, a big tree that is just it's fallen, and it looks like it's a sturdy piece of wood, and you go up and it's just rotting all the way through. Have you ever seen that? Or you pick a piece of fruit out of uh, that the fruit fresh basket in your refrigerator, and it looks good, and then you turn it over, and it doesn't look so good. Or perhaps it looks really good from the outside, but you cut into it, and you realize, oh, no, this is nasty. I'm not going to eat that. This is dead. It looks alive. 
church at Sardis has this reputation of being alive, but they are dead, Jesus says. He goes on in verse 2, For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. What does Jesus mean? What does he mean that their works aren't complete? Because they're, they're, they're busy? They've got lots of good things going on. What does Jesus mean? Perhaps what Jesus is saying is they're a church that never finishes where they start. Perhaps Jesus is saying that you, you, know, you have great ideas, you have great plans, you have great goals, you have great objectives, but you know what? You never follow through. You're busy, but are you getting anywhere? A lot of commentators speak of the church of Sardis as half-hearted and superficial, content with mediocrity, one of the commentators says. Content with mediocrity. It's not too hard, hard to imagine this, is it? A church content with mediocrity. A situation, a company, people, families content with mediocrity. Now there's a difference between having peace with, and being content with what you have, but when you're just content with mediocrity. It's like maybe one of the friends you had in high school that was really intelligent. You, you ever have one of those friends that's really intelligent but had no ambition whatsoever? And years later, you find out that the world was their oyster. They could have done anything. But they never went anywhere because they lacked ambition. They were content with mediocrity. Are we utilizing the gifts that have been given to us to excel for Jesus' sake? Or are we content with mediocrity? In our busyness, it's easy to lose sight of what we are, of why we are doing what we are doing, or should we say, why, for whom we are doing what we are doing. Jesus could be saying that for all the church's great programs and things they were doing, the great deeds that they were doing, that in this beehive of spiritual activity, perhaps they were not doing the one thing they were being called to do. Maybe that was the lack of follow-through. They were not evangelizing. Because at the beginning of Revelation, Jesus is walking among what? Anybody remember? What's the image? He's walking among seven golden candlesticks, these lampstands. What's the purpose of a lampstand? To be an altar. And the purpose of light is to chase away the darkness. That's its purpose. And if we, the churches, are those lampstands, are we giving off the light that chases away the darkness? Or are we just a lampstand with no light? Standing not fulfilling purpose. George Card says this about the church in Sardis, about their reputation being alive yet dead, is that he said it's, it's the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. Inoffensive Christianity. 
I think we all know churches, ministries, even believers that are all about inoffensive Christianity. We want to be careful what we say. And I'm not saying that we need to go out hurting people's feelings. We need to be very careful what we say. And anything we say, we need to say with love. But are we, are we not saying the hard things that we're being called to say because we just don't want to? That's one of the hard things about our political correct movement that's out there. I think we do need to choose our words carefully, and there are times that we need to choose our words differently because they may not be communicating what we want to say. But there's such a hypersensitivity out there that, that I know as a pastor, I'm afraid about saying just about anything. Because what's going to be on social media, as I put up my phone, and put it on Facebook so that everybody can pass around? What if I say something that gets passed around and gets misconstrued, misunderstood, and next thing you know, I'm getting hate mail? Mailed to my house that my family is seeing in me. Getting rocks thrown through my window. I mean, that's, that's the back of my mind. But we should not be afraid to offend. There's a difference between us offending somebody and the gospel offending somebody. Because you know what? Jesus is radically different from our culture. There's a difference between when the gospel offends somebody and when we are the ones, the messengers, offending somebody. But I wonder if this church in Sardis was so far on the inoffensive end. Because consider this. Out of all the churches, Sardis was the one not facing persecution. Because haven't we heard that in the other churches? They were facing persecution, and it was that persecution in the face of persecution that led them to go towards some of their sins. Because they were being persecuted. There was pressure upon them. But the church in Sardis had no such pressure. Why was that? You think it's because Sardis was so welcoming to the message of Jesus that they just welcomed him with open arms and therefore there was no persecution? Or was the church so innocuous that nobody even bothered to persecute him? Because what reason? They weren't called names of trouble. They're just there. Why do you think they weren't facing persecution? Perhaps they were too accommodating, too silent on important matters, too shy to share the good news, and too afraid to boldly proclaim this countercultural message of our Savior Jesus. Daryl Johnson suggests that perhaps this message to the church of Sardis, and really to every church, is that we are always on the brink, is how he puts it. We're always on the brink, we're always on the edge. It was not disobedience that led Sardis to its growth. If it was the largest church, I mean, it was growing at one point. And maybe it even still was growing. It wasn't always disobedience leading to that growth. But it was certainly disobedience that was leading to their death. And death isn't always a loss of numbers of people. There can be a spiritual death, death that happens. They had all reputations of being alive, but yet, Jesus says, you are dead. Sardis was disobedient. Perhaps they were apathetic. They lacked focus, so they died. Why were they not? Where did they lose their connection? 
John in his gospel shares a conversation that he has with Jesus, and Jesus says this, I am the vine, and you are branches. I am the vine, you are the branches, is what Jesus tells us. Can a branch live apart from the vine? Correct answer is no. In fact, it, it may appear alive for a while. We consider when we cut flowers, you know, we, we kill flowers to get to our loved ones. So here, have a pretty dying flower. I always thought that was kind of funny. And then Kate, you know, crucifies them by drying them out, hanging them upside down and everything. I think she's, gosh, we're going to kill them yet, but put them on display. But flowers, when you first come, they're beautiful. And they may even last for days when you put them in a little bit of water, but is water the same as the vine? Because they begin to fade, they begin to die, they begin to crumble. They appear alive for a while, but they're not. You know, a gas can go on, or a car can go on fumes for a little while. But if you've ever run out of gas, you realize you can only go on fumes, but so far. And then this car, you can appear on it, and it seems like it's a good car. It's in good condition and everything, but it's not filled with gas. It doesn't go. It doesn't fulfill its purpose. It just takes up space. I am the vine, and you are the branches. What is Jesus really telling us here? He's telling us our spiritual health, our well-being as individuals and as a church depend wholly and only upon our connection to him. We have to stay connected. We sever the tie even a moment, and we begin to die and shrivel. Life can only be found. In our connection to Jesus. So I have this question to you. How does this death that Jesus is talking about to this church of Sardis appear in our congregation today? What does that death look like? Because as I mentioned, it doesn't always mean you're losing numbers. I would venture to say there are probably some churches that have large numbers of people that appear alive. They're dead and dying. So what, what does it appear like? Offer that to you. What, what does it look like to be a church that is dying? How does, how does it appear? What are some of the signs that you might see? You lose your testimony. You lose your testimony? No spirit. You should leave change, right? The thing that's always cracked me up is leaving church and seeing how many how much road rage happens in the parking lot of the church. I've seen it. It's amazing. Absolutely. Are we leaving change? Are we being changed by the message of Jesus? Because it should be convenient. Anybody else? How does it appear? You, uh, how does death appear in a congregation? It could be 
be hard to note sometimes, can it? It's not always quickly apparent. It can be slow, a slow fade, so to speak. It really can be a slow fade. It can be when we turn from God's truth and start preaching a watered-down gospel. Have you ever heard a watered-down gospel preached? It just kind of lacks the home. Like, okay, well, you know, you can believe what you cannot believe. That doesn't, that's not very convicting. Who wants to jump on that bandwagon? Yeah, let's carry the flag for that. You can believe her. You don't have to be. She's not convenient. It's all good. As we were talking to past week, there, there are many paths to God. So we're only one option. You want to go down this other path. No, there are different peaks, different mountains to climb. It can be when we preach an incomplete picture of Jesus. That could be another way to preach water you ever heard someone who highlights one aspect of Jesus more than another? I mean, you see it in, in the old fire and brimstone churches, where it's all about the judgment and the fear. We're going we're to scare people to Jesus. Come on. Fear tactics. You're going to go to hell if you don't believe. You're going to burn. And so you just talk about all this. I mean, okay, thank you for terrifying me. But yet, they never talk about the grace and the love of Jesus. Because it's all about the judgment, fire and brimstone. Or it can be the converse of that. Well, we love to talk about the lovey-dovey Jesus. The Jesus that's all grace and love. And it doesn't matter, but then we never talk about discipline and judgment that come with love. It's two sides of the same coin. We can water it down and we paint that incomplete picture. It's when we find ourselves attempting for God, only what our human resources will allow. We no longer push ourselves out into the deep water beyond our own resources to do something God might be calling us to do to resource us to do. So we've, we've diagnosed this problem here about this, this death that's appearing alive. So, so what can be done? Jesus offers some urgent care. He understands that a branch doesn't live long separated from the vine. So this is, this is urgent care. This is triage. This is coming to the ER going, okay, here's what we have to do. We have to stop the bleeding. We have to stop the bleeding. So here are five commands that I will give you. It says in verse 2, Wake it up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember that you are what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. So the first one there was in bold. It's mentioned twice. And that was what? Wake up. The first piece of urgent care is to wake up. Now, most translations, English translations, miss the impact of this word. We're not talking about wake up like, you know, a teenager trying to get ready for school. Like, wake up, mom, it's time to get up. It's actually, more literally, it's keep on being watchful or become a person who is watchful. It's a little different from just wake up, right? It's not just this one-time thing. It's a continual thing. You have to continue to be watchful. When Jesus finds his disciples falling asleep when he asks them to, to stay vigilant while he was praying before he faced his time of trial. 
Why do we get so frustrated? They did not stay watchful. They did not stay alert. So that's what this wake up means. It means you must stay alert. It's a continual thing you have to do. You have to stay alert. And this would have been quite a nuanced statement to the people in Sardis. Why? Because if we look at the history books, we find that Sardis was a city that fell twice in history because of a lack of vigilance. Twice. Because they did not stay watchful. Once in 549 BC, when Cyrus captured the Acropolis by sending one climber up a crevice in one particular wall who snuck in in an open and the city fell. Or in 218 BC, when Antipas the Great captured the city with only 15 men sneaking in. Only took a few because they were not vigilant and watchful. The history of Sardis teaches us that we are never more in danger of falling than when we are comfortable and at ease and not staying. We cannot grow too comfortable in our resources, our position, in our journey of faith, or in our ministry. We must wake up and stay alert, is Jesus' first command. You want to stop the bleeding. You want to seek life. Wake up. Stay alert. Don't get too comfortable. Because then he goes on to say, strengthen what remains. I don't think this means we're supposed to double down on our structures and keeping things done the way we've always done them. I think what it does mean is that we carefully discern what gives life and value and keep doing that. Don't ease up. If it's giving life, if it's pursuing God's purpose, keep doing that. Johnson suggests that we, he thinks every church should reevaluate their ministry every five years. He suggests every five years you stop everything and then you take time to discern and evaluate what is your vision, what is your mission, and then only start back up those ministries that still fulfill that vision and that purpose. I wonder how many churches would be brave enough to say, okay, every five years we're going to stop everything and only things that are still fulfilling that purpose instead. Strengthen what remains. But then we're asked to remember. Remember what? Remember what you received. Do not forget. We are being urged to remember the point, the focus, and the reality in which we live. We exist because God created us. We are broken because of our own rebellion. And we are saved only through Jesus. And we have hope only because of His grace. And we only find life through Him. We must remember that. We must not forget that. Because it's easy to forget. We are forgetful people. We like to pick on the Israelites, especially in Exodus and you know, the book of Judges. Oh, how quickly they forget. How quickly we forget. Do you always remember that you are saved and loved by God? That your only value and your only true identity is found in Jesus? That you are sitting when you find your identity in your job and your own ambitions and things. And well, now I'm important. I've worked my way up. And if you find your value in that over your identity in Jesus, you're wrong. Your ambition will fail you. 
make mistakes. We must find our value, our identity in Jesus. We must never forget. We must remember. Because then Jesus urges us to keep it. Verse 3 says, keep it. Which literally translated here, it's, it's more like saying, keep on keeping it. Or as I've always heard it, you know, keep on keeping on. You ever heard that phrase? Keep on keeping on. We cannot open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit and to Jesus just once and leave it there. We have to continually keep opening ourselves to the Spirit. Because does the branch connected to the vine only receive nourishment once? No, it's an ongoing thing. Do you eat once and you're good? You're golden? No. If you're like me, you keep on eating. I like to eat. I keep on eating. Our, our bodies continually need nourishment. It's not a one-time thing. We continue to need nourishment. So keep on staying connected to Jesus. And then the last one is the urging that this a consistent message to all the churches, which is to repent. Remember what repentance means? It means to cease and to change directions completely. That's what it means. To stop what you're doing and change directions. That's what it means to repent. To return to Jesus. Repent. Do it now. But how are we to know if we are truly a church that's being watchful, strengthening what remains, that we're a church that's remembering, that we are keeping on, keeping on, that we are repenting? How do we know? Are there signs of health? Are there vital signs, so to speak, for a church? And I believe there are. I think there are nine vital signs I'll point out. A church that is confessing Jesus as Lord. If a church no longer confesses Jesus as Lord, the one and only, the true God, that's a dying church. A healthy, thriving church confesses Jesus as Lord. Spirit of adoption. We act as children of God. We may, we all may be God's creation, but I would dare say that we're not all. Because to be a child of God is not just to be a, a creation of God. It's to be adopted into the family. We have to accept the adoption that's offered to us. In fact, we are called to call God Father. Because God is the Father of the family. Are we adopted? Are we intimate with God? Ever notice how we can just tell when someone is close to God? You ever had one of those people that you can just you can tell that they have an intimate relationship with God? Sometimes maybe here and say, I can tell you're a person of prayer. I can just I can sense it around you. You know when someone is in the presence of God. Fruits of the Spirit. Can anybody name the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians? Love. Love. Joy. Peace. Long-suffering, so patience, kindness, patience, self-control, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness. So it goes, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
These are the fruits of the Spirit. Someone who is displaying the fruits of the Spirit is displaying those things. These are attributes we can look to. Spirit of unity and not division. Now, this unity is not uniformity. There's a difference between unity and uniformity. Just because you come here doesn't mean we all have to be the same. We can be quite different from one another, but yet we can still be unified in Christ. And unity doesn't even mean that we all belong to the same political party in this room. We can have different political views, but still be unified in Christ. Race, creed, nation, all of these things are man-made barriers. We can unify beyond them. What about compassion? This is one that we, we point out in our own church that's one of our core commitments is ceaseless compassion. Jesus showed compassion to the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized of society. Are we doing the same? What about growth? The church that is alive is growing. And that may not just be in the number of people, because growth is more than just butts and seeds. This is where learning the Sardis. They were a big church, but yet they were dying. So there's spiritual growth. Are we seeing fruit? Passion. Are we so passionate about our relationship with Jesus? Are we living a life desiring to be holy? Are we striving? Realize we can't be perfect. We will fail. But are we striving for? Are we striving to display Jesus to a world that needs to see Jesus? <clears throat> Are we willing to die for our faith? Do we believe it enough that we're willing to put our life on the line? We truly believe what we preach and we're willing to put our life on the line. It doesn't mean we do it needlessly so. We don't need a bunch of people running out of here to be martyrs today. But are you willing, if your life is put on the line, for the sake of the gospel. Would you do it or would you shrink back to it? So I'll offer these questions of reflection to you as we close. What place does Jesus occupy in your life? What place does Jesus occupy in your life? Is Jesus in a little trophy case off to the side that you pass by every once in a while, maybe once a month going dust? Or is Jesus at the center? Is Jesus only someone you think about on Sunday or maybe before a meal? Or is Jesus at the center of everything you do, everywhere you are? If Jesus were to take away the spirit from you, would anybody notice the difference? Would you notice the difference? Would it change the way you live if you remove the spirit? Because we should be so in need of Jesus' spirit, that if he were to withdraw, we would be devastated. But if you're living life on your own power, what does it matter if Jesus is taken away? Finally, when was the last time you shared Jesus with anyone? If you love Jesus, and you're appreciative of what he's done for you, then are you excited enough to because if you're not, then you don't get it. You don't get how powerful a message it is to be loved by Jesus. The message of Sardis is this, we're always on the brink. 
We are always on the edge of death. Will we choose life? Will you choose life? We are always on the brink. Which is why Jesus identifies, maybe identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars and the seven spirits. In one hand are the stars, the angels of the churches, and somehow the churches themselves, and in the other hand is the life-giving spirit of God. And so we pray, Jesus, bring those two hands together. Bring them together to remind us of the hope of your abundant life. Will you choose life? Let us pray. God, we pray that you would help us choose life over death. That we wouldn't be content with mediocrity. That we wouldn't be content with just doing things for the sake of doing things, but that we would be a church that is sharing your good news of the broken world. That if we really seek to see our community changed by the hope and healing of Jesus, we have to share Jesus. Help us be bold in sharing Jesus. Help us be bold in bringing people to life. Because what we're doing is we're calling people out of death to a to true abundance. Help us to be bold in that. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of the saints say, Amen. Amen.